I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2006. I hope you enjoy it. Listeners to the morning show may remember a, a memorable interview I did a few months back with Todd Gitlin, uh, the author of Letters to a Young Activist, which was a part of a fascinating series of books published by Basic Books uh, called The Art of Mentoring. And uh, the most recent in the series is a book I liked every bit as much by Mary Pfeiffer, uh, who is uh, many times over a, a highly regarded author and a psychotherapist who lives in Lincoln, Nebraska, which is a former hometown of mine. And uh, she is the author of Letters to a Young Therapist, Stories of Hope and Healing by the best-selling author of Reviving Ophelia. And Mary Pfeiffer joins us for a few minutes to speak with us on the morning show. Mary Pfeiffer. We welcome you to the program. Thank you very much, Greg. Uh, did you know much about this series called The Art of Mentoring before this invitation came from Basic Books? No, I didn't. They approached me and asked me to do it, and I think at that time there was Letters to a Young Attorney by Alan Dershowitz and Letters to a Young Golfer, and I know nothing about golf, but they sent me those two, and then I reread Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet, which was the inspiration for the series. And I, I really wanted to do it. I, I left my publishing company to go to Basic to do this book, which I tend to be very loyal to my editor and to my original publishers. But I wanted to do it because it, it kind of came up after September 11th. I was feeling like so many Americans just overwhelmed by the, the darkness in the world and these enormous cultural forces that I, I, I felt helpless to control. And so it seemed to me such a healing thing to be able to write about the, the small world of human relationships, which I, I felt I understood pretty well, and to do something that was maybe useful in a small way as a sort of antidote to the, the great hopelessness I felt about the, the large things that I could not affect. Mm. The thing that I love about uh, Todd Gitlin's book and, and your book is that uh, it is such a, an approachable, kind of down-to-earth, non-clinical way of, of talking about things that, that can be approached, of course, uh, in, in very sort of heavy, complicated ways. Uh, and and I, I'm guessing that you, as Todd Gitlin, welcome the chance to, uh, to talk about some of these things and what you do uh, in, with a, a bit of sort of breezy informality that allows all kinds of people into your world. Absolutely. I, one person called me a uh, prairie home therapist, which isn't a bad moniker because, first of all, I, I think it's very important for academics and eggheads to take profound ideals and, and, and talk about things in simple, ordinary human language. And my favorite writers do that, by the way. I mean, if you think of someone like Robert Frost, he talks about such profound ideas, but he talks about them using words like rock, tree, snow, farm. And, and that's how I like to talk. I really like simple language. The other thing is, I, I come from a, an enormously interesting, complex, working-class background, for the most part. And I like earthy people. I like farm people. I like my cousin Steve is one of my closest friends. He's worked in a cheese factory all his life. And I find a lot of common sense and uh, wisdom in the way, for example, my relatives talk. And so I, I threw some of that in the book, just, 
just to make myself happy, basically. <laughs> One of the things you say about your, your work as a, as, a, uh, as a therapist, you see yourself as a, a generalist, mm-hmm. the, psycho- uh, the psychologist equivalent of my mother, who was a general practitioner mm-hmm. of, of medicine. Right, right. Yeah, I, uh, over the 30 years I had a, a private practice, I saw, you know, I saw troubled teenagers, I saw children that weren't cooperating with their toilet training, I saw lots and lots of college students who were having various kinds of stress reactions and depression as a result of leaving home. I saw people struggling with dating, I saw people struggling with marriage, I saw people struggling with divorce older people losing their mates, and I saw families, individuals. I liked that. I liked the interest in diversity, which my mother had really liked as well. Uh, The other thing is I I really liked it that during the years I was a therapist in Lincoln, where I live in Nebraska, therapy was not restricted to upper middle class and and wealthy people because, for example, we had a big rubber plant in in our town, that had good insurance. So I saw a lot of workers from the rubber factory. And I liked the fact that I had a, a diversity of clients in terms of, of income and, and race and, and uh, value systems and so on. One of the things you mentioned at some point, I think early on in the book, maybe in the introduction, you talk a, a little bit about how different your work is now versus 1972 when you began, yeah. when you said that psychologists were more than anything testers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When I came into the field, I was trained in the Rorschach and the thematic apperception test and all these projective tests. And and the main thing we did was work in hospitals, um, figuring out the right diagnosis to give someone and then consulting with psychiatrists. And of course, now there's still psychologists working in in testing and, and, and much more sophisticated, for example, neurological testing. But over the years as I practiced, I I really lost interest in labeling people, in diagnoses. And I I guess what I would say replaced it was just a real curiosity about all the different ways humans go about solving their human problems. And I I started, for example, with my grad students the last 10 years. I would not not cooperate in a system that came up with labels for human beings. I told the university when they hired me, this is something I won't teach students because I don't believe in it. And I, uh, I, I really tried to teach a very different way of thinking about people that focused on positive psychology, on evaluation of strengths, on uh, resilience, and uh, in a more holistic way, too. Like a lot of my solutions to human problems actually don't involve therapy. They involve visits to grandparents. They involve family vacations or meditating or starting a flower garden. I think there are many more ways than therapy to solve ordinary human problems. So sometimes I see myself as a consultant helping people design um, new ways to approach problems in their lives. We're speaking with Mary Pfeiffer, the author of a remarkable book called Letters to a young therapist. Mary Pfeiffer, as you uh, talk about your family and uh, the life uh, you led that, that eventually drew you into this work as a, uh, as a therapist, you mentioned being um, a big sister. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I loved how you talked about how there's a positive and a negative to, to that. In that. On the one hand, you are 
We're sort of then by nature nurturing and caretaking, but actually also a bit bossy and overly responsible. <laughs> so um, I don't know if I should have confessed that to the whole world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was the oldest of seven kids. My parents were good parents, but they were disorganized and they were gone a lot. My mom was just uh, the, the one doctor in a county and just constantly exhausted. That's back when doctors did house calls. She drove uh, 15 miles to the hospital where she had patients, and uh, often she stayed up all night out at some old farm while somebody died or had a baby. So my experience as a child is I was left in charge of my siblings a lot. And it's interesting because if you told that to a lot of therapists, they would say, oh, you poor baby, you were a parental child or, or you were neglected. And actually, I, I was neglected, but I, I see that as a kind of benign neglect that allowed me from a very early age to depend on myself and to, to, to see myself as someone who could take care of myself and other people. And, and that's the good part of it. The bad part of it is, I, I think there's no doubt about it, that one of the serious issues that I've had to struggle with as an adult my entire life is, is the tendency to feel overly responsible for the world. And it's been very hard, for example, with the, the, the sadness of the world the last two or three years because I, I'm someone who takes a lot of responsibility for the world. And I've thought, what can I do about Iraq? What can I do about this or that problem that's, that's very serious and important to our country? And it, it's been, I think, for me, a hard thing to realize how little I can do about some of these big problems. Hmm. You also mentioned the fact that uh, another side of the, of the personal legacy, which leads you into the work of, of, of being a therapist and a good one, is, uh, is that you learned people skills from being a waitress. Oh, my gosh. Tell us a little bit about how you see significance. I, I, I love that because so many people would, might have that chapter in their life and, 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 and miss the significance of what can be learned yeah, from yeah. being a car hop at A&W. Well, first of all, a couple things. One, I feel like I started learning people skills very young because my family has sort of a lot of rural people, a lot of uh, Ozark hillbilly people, um, a lot of um, some fundamentalists and evangelical Christians, um, atheists and Unitarians. One of my uncles was a member of the Communist Party. I have one aunt who was a millionaire. So there's a real diverse group of people in terms of religion, political philosophy, urban, rural point of view on the universe. And they were all like me. They were big yakkers. And so there was a lot of arguing and disputing and talk. And my parents, too, just our house was always full. And we would, uh, at midnight, I had a bed by the uh, dining room. I slept in the living room in a little day bed. And my folks would be up late at night playing cards with people, and I'd hear my dad say when our company started to flag, would you stay around another couple hours if I cook you a steak? He just liked people in the house. So I, I learned a lot as a kid from just all the people that trooped through our house with all these different points of view. And I'd watch the way some parents were strict or some couples related to each other, and I just always had a curiosity for why does one aunt make the children go to bed at 7 at night? Why does one uncle always speak sharply to his wife? I, I was interested in that in a way I think many children probably aren't. Uh, but then when I was 13, I became a car hop. I worked as a car hop all through high school on Highway 81 that goes right down through the middle of Kansas. 
And that was a good experience. I dealt with cranky people. I dealt with persnickety people. I dealt with kind and wonderful people. And it it just gave me a a pretty good view of the human race on wheels. Um, And then when I was at, I I went graduated from Berkeley, and I I worked at the Dunkin' Donut in San Francisco, right by the bus station during the Vietnam War. Wow. And so that's when there were the, that was, there were porno shops around that area. The soldiers coming and going to Vietnam got dumped out of that bus station. The hippies were coming in, and I was there serving people coffee and talking to them. So I feel like by the time I became a therapist, I knew how to talk to pretty much anybody in the world. And I like to see kids work. I I think kids can work too much if they they work so much they, they don't have time to socialize and see their friends and sleep and relax and study and so on. But I think one of the best educations you can have as a children is to go get a job where you're out there meeting and greeting the public and just learning the things your parents can't teach you because you're learning them from people who are different from your parents. Hmm. One of the things that uh, you confront uh, in, in your book time and time again, and I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that this is because a lot of people think this, is that uh, so much of the work of a therapist involves the negative involves the pain. People do not make an appointment to talk to you because life is so wonderful and they're just brimming over with gratitude. Uh, People come to a therapist because something is wrong or they need help. And uh, it's it's interesting to to, uh, choose a a life for oneself, which is going to involve that Mm -hmm. day after day after day. Right, and one of the things people often say is, well, how do you do it? How do you listen to problems all day long? And, and it's really a different situation because I tell them I'm not listening to problems. I'm listening for solutions. And that's a totally different way of listening. So someone can come in, and maybe they've lost their spouse of 30 years, and they're sitting in there crying. And if I were responding as their best friend or their daughter, I'd just be sitting there feeling enormous pain for them. But as it is, of course I feel pain for them. But I also am thinking as I listen to them talk, what is it this person needs today to feel a little bit better, to move a little bit along in the grief process? And because I have a different question, I have have a a sort of a different experience of that that conversation. The other thing is my, my general experience as a therapist is people get better. They come in with problems, but rapidly, as we start to clarify the situation and come up with ideas for solving those problems, they start feeling better. And so a lot of what I talk to people about in therapy is their victories, their new experiences, how things are improving, and that's a lot of fun. That's a very rewarding experience. One of the things you said that I had not really stopped to think about, I had not stopped to think about the importance of this, is you say, therapy gives clients a safe relationship in which to explore their inner world and to consider taking risks in their external one. Right, right. You know, I'm critical of our field in some ways. I I think we've done people a tremendous disservice when we've we've family-bashed and we've talked about dysfunctional families. I I don't like that at all. I'm not a big fan of Freud. I've never thought, for example, that that, um, uh, sex and aggression and competitiveness were were the only... uh, uh, real motivations for, for human behavior. On the other hand, I, I think one of the things about therapy that I love the most 
is it's basically a very simple behavior. It's listening carefully to another human being. And that's something we humans have done for each other for the 10,000 generations we've been human. I think it's one of the oldest forms of healing, just simply listening and trying to understand another human being. And it's also something that's very, very rare. And it's amazing how well people respond to the simple act of being totally understood and accepted for who they are. Hmm. You say, for the most part, my solutions to human problems have been simple ones. Get more rest, do good work, take things a day at a time, and, and find some people to love. Uh, you, are, you are maybe flying, uh, swimming upstream uh, in, in a world where a lot of therapists like to uh, parade a bag of tricks. You don't like the idea of a therapist with tricks. Well, I think it may work very well for other people. It doesn't work well for me. In fact, when I tried to be back in graduate school, we learned some fancy strategies and, and uh, oh, paradoxical interventions and, and things like this. And when I try to use those kind of strategies, I confuse myself. And it's because I, I think my personality is such a very straightforward person, and, and it just doesn't work for me. But therapy is very much like writing. Every therapist finds a voice. And my voice as a therapist is very similar to my voice as a writer. I, I tend to be simple and direct and to the point and positive, and that has, has worked the best for me. Uh, I, I think people can do things many different ways. Hmm. Um, I think maybe I was thinking of, a, of another place in the introduction where you are a little more uh, scathing in your criticism. Uh, when, when you really take to task therapists who uh, seem to believe that, that they can accomplish profound good in, uh, in the lives of their clients in, in no time flat, and you seem to really believe, and not just for yourself, but for all people, that good therapy is something which takes time, like good cooking, for instance. Absolutely. I, I tell a story in Letters to Young Therapists about a, uh, an article I read where uh, an African-American woman comes in in a great deal of distress, and she has a, she has a bad job, and she has a, a difficult relationship with a man. And within about 20 minutes of meeting this woman, her therapist decides that the source of her long-term depression is her relationship to her mother, and, and specifically to an incident occurred where her mother said something that hurt her feelings at a funeral. And it just made me so angry because I, I felt like, first of all, it's insulting to people if on the basis of 20 minutes discussion with them, you can figure out their lives. In fact, the longer I've been a therapist, the more I've felt that the best word you can use in therapy is complex. Complex says, I respect you. I understand that the person you are at this moment has been formed by hundreds of hours and hundreds of forces. It's going to take me some time to understand you. It's going to take you some time to understand you. And there's many mysteries about you that neither one of us will be able to fathom. That's a respectful way to approach a person. To me, it's contemptuous to say that on the basis of one session, you know what to do with another human being. That doesn't mean you don't have a suggestion or two, but it does mean that people cannot be a sort of, there's no computer program that you can print out to solve human problems. And I particularly didn't like in this, this brief therapy. Brief therapy is very popular because it's cheap, and we're living in a world where cheap is popular. But I particularly didn't like in this brief therapy session 
that the solution uh, this therapist offered was to distance from the mother because he doesn't know the mother. She isn't in the room to defend herself, uh, and he is not going to be there for the woman if she gets sick or can't make a rent payment or wants somebody to eat Thanksgiving dinner with. And so from my point of view, he was doing her great harm to suggest that the source of her problems was the person who would be there to do those things. Yeah, life is so often much more complicated than uh, than anything like that. In fact, one of the most beautiful moments in the book is when you uh, compare the English language to the Japanese language, mm. and you talk about how uh, actually in, in the English language we have almost no words at all that talk about a mix of feelings in a single word. You say the word bittersweet is such a word, but there's there's hardly any others at all compared to, for instance, the Japanese language, which apparently has all kinds of words which, right. which embody this mix of emotions, this complexity of feelings, which is, of course, part of what makes us human. Right, exactly. Yeah, and, and I own, my experience of myself is often I'm experiencing two or three emotions at the same time, and that I have mixed feelings about almost everything. Uh, I have, for example, when I leave a family reunion, my heart is breaking two ways at once. It's, it's filled with joy that I, I've been around people that I love, that look like me, that remember my parents when they were children. My parents are dead now, so it always makes me so happy to see people who can talk about them. And it's filled with sorrow at the same time that I'm leaving that group of people that some of them may die before I see them again. And that's how life is. I, I love the metaphor um, in the book I use of the Cape of Good Hope, which is also the Cape of Storms. Hmm. Life is both good hope and storms. And I, I think it's, it's, uh, it's really unfortunate that our language doesn't give us more scope to talk about feelings in a nuanced, sophisticated way. Because we don't have words to describe more than one feeling at once, we tend to be too simplistic when we talk about our feelings. Um, and, and, and because we're so simplistic, we miss some of the extraordinary uh, possibilities within our, our own feeling systems. At some point in the book, you talk about good therapy gently but firmly moving people out of denial and compartmentalization. I was not surprised to, to, to see you say denial, because I think we all know what denial is and how harmful it can be. But uh, I want you to talk about uh, the other term that you use there and, and how you see that as a harmful thing and how a therapist can make a difference. Well, compartmentalization basically means dividing the world up into categories. For example, uh, sacred profane, work, play, family, not family. And work is a very good example of the, the dangers of compartmentalization because just to pick the most extreme example, one of the reasons the Nazis were able to do what they did was they called it work. And they were doing their duty and they were performing their work chores. And they divorced that from any, any of their morals, any of their, their feelings about themselves as, as people. Uh, if they hadn't, they wouldn't have been able to do those things. And there's many people in America who do work that, for example, pollutes the environment or cuts off health benefits to needy families that are able to do that work because they're compartmentalized. But there's another kind of compartmentalization, too, which is between uh, thinking and behaving, between feeling and thinking, 
And we Americans are, are very good at this compartmentalization, as opposed to um, many people in other parts of the world who haven't learned that feelings, thinking, and behavior are very separate categories. And so, for example, a person can be thinking that it's a really sad thing about global warming and that they really don't want those rainforests cut down, but they can go buy an SUV. They can not connect their thoughts about the world with their own behavior. And so one of the things I think a good therapist does is help people connect the dots between thinking, behavior, and feelings, and also between the past and the present, and be able to say things like, you know, do you think the fact that you're struggling with your job right now has anything to do with the fact that um, when you were a boy, you saw your dad so miserable in his job? or whatever, so that you're connecting people to different times in their life. Uh, you're connecting people to people and other relationships, helping them see the connections between their own thoughts and feelings and behavior so that they can be more whole, basically. I, I think part of being a therapist is helping people reach um, clarity about the big questions in their lives. And those questions are all the same for all of us. There are really four questions. Am I loved? Am I sane? Am I respected? And am I understood? Mm. And those questions pretty much sum up what we're all about. Speaking of summing up, as we get to the end of the book, one of the things I really appreciated, and, and through the course of the book, on the one hand, you, you tend to not take yourself or your field too seriously. I mean, you resist the urge to be placed on a high pedestal. Right. And on the other hand, you have this profound sense that what you are doing is important. At one point you say therapists are connected to an ancient and beautiful idea that mm -hmm. down through the generations there have been people that have done this in many and various ways to help other people. Absolutely. I'm, I'm hard on our profession, but on the other hand, we are an ancient profession. And I think our goals are good goals. We want to alleviate human suffering. We want to fight intolerance, understand other people. We want to help people grow their souls and enhance their relationships and develop their talents. And so I feel like as a profession, there is no profession that has more noble goals. Hmm. Mary Pfeiffer, the book is Letters to a Young Therapist, a part of the series The Art of Mentoring, published by Basic Books. Mary Pfeiffer, I profoundly enjoyed speaking with you today on The Morning Show, and congratulations on, on writing a really wonderful book. Thank you so much. It was fun to be on.